Would you turn with me please to Philippians in chapter 2. And I'm going to uh, read to, um, from verse 1 to, um, I guess, verse 17 or 18. <clears throat> so, if there is in any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labour in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. An amazing passage. And uh, I just want to um, look at... uh, verses 12 and 13 as my text, if you like. Um, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. (coughs) But before we say too much about that verse, what we do need to say is what that verse is not saying. To start with, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, if that was the only verse we had, we might be justified in thinking that it was because of our works that we became saved. But it's not the only verse we've got. We've got the whole of the Bible. And we can see in many, many places 
that the Bible doesn't teach that we become saved because of our works. In uh, Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 and 9, Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So Paul says clearly there that our salvation is a gift of God and not by our own works, that we cannot work to be saved. And he says something similar in Romans chapter 3 and verse 22 to 25. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now that word propitiation means to um, be able to please God. It means the things that are naturally in us that would displease God are dealt with and set aside. And they were set aside by Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And again, Paul says there that we have been justified by his grace. That's God's grace as a gift through that sacrifice of Jesus. We've been made right with God through that sacrifice of Jesus and which we have received by faith. So it's our faith in what Jesus has done that means that we can be saved, not by our works. So then, what on earth is this verse saying? Work out your own salvation. Because logically the English would appear um, to be saying that you can be saved by your works, but it's not saying that. That word uh, there that's uh, translated work out um, is a Greek word that I, I'd written down phonetically, but I'm not going to try and pronounce it. Um, and if you look through the list of places that's used, that word is used in the New Testament, it is plain that it's about an outcome. As it says, work out your salvation... This workout, wherever it's used, is about the outcome of something that happens. So what this verse is actually saying to us is, or Paul is saying to the Philippians and through them saying to us, that you are saved, and because you are saved, there ought to be some evidence of that in the way that you live. There is an outcome in the way that you live. So he's saying... You're saved, Work. let that salvation work out in the way that you live. And that's what is encouraging the um, Philippians to do. And in that particular context, Paul's concern for the Philippians is that he knows they do that when he's with them, sort of coaching them and mentoring them, and he's trying to encourage them to do that when he's not there when he can't see what's going on and maybe they're only doing this because they're afraid of him or whatever it is. Um, so he's encouraging them to be consistent in the way that they live and in the way that their salvation works out in their attitudes and their uh, behaviours. But it's then interesting because it says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And what on earth does that mean? To work out that salvation with fear and trembling. Well, if you look at the uh, the words that follow, you can see why we might fear and tremble. 
um, because it is God who works in you both to will and to work to his good pleasure. So it's God at work in us to bring about the outcome of our faith. And God is the almighty God. I think in, uh, uh, was it Psalm 91, we talk about in the, fir- in the first two verses, you know, God the Most High, God the Almighty. He is supreme. And he has absolute power and might. And only a fool would not tremble in the presence of such a God. Now I'm sure that we've all trembled in the presence of our fathers. We love our fathers and we know our fathers have loved us, particularly when we were little and doing naughty things. And the thing we wouldn't want to do is to be caught out by the nuclear option, by dad catching us out or being tasked by mum to discipline us. And that would be one of the things that kept us uh, doing the right, uh, the right thing and not being too naughty at least. But there is this mix of fear, which is this awesome respect and a desire not to displease that sits side by side with the Father's love for us and our love for the Father. I think those two things can't be separated. They go together. They're, they're the two sides of the coin, if you like, of this wonderful and marvellous God. But it is God who works in us. We can't, um, we can't work out how to live out our salvation without God working in us. We have no power to do it. We have no power to save ourselves. And that's because our natural characters are completely and utterly opposed to God and we've lost all of our righteousness as far as God is concerned. There's nothing that we can do that can make us right with God in the beginning or to continue to make us right with God as we live, except where God chooses to work in us and to work his uh, power in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. And then note, let's read that verse again. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is working in you for his good pleasure. He is the sovereign God. He is able to do exactly what he wants. And in Isaiah, I think it is, he tells us his purposes will always come about. It is God working in us to be pleased with us. And God is always successful. God will always be pleased with you. Because you're his and because he's working in you to bring that about. That means God delights in you, delights in me. Sometimes when we look back on what we've done, we might not, well, we might wonder how on earth he does that or why he does that or does he really do that. But he does. We can rely upon this. This is God's word after all. And he will work in us for his good pleasure. And so he helps us to live out our salvation, to live a life that brings pleasure to him and that he can delight in uh, the way that we live. And the word, just to to be clear here, um, that word work out 
that's one the the, um, the Greek there's a Greek word translated into work out and that's different to the word that's translated work in that verse so it says work out your salvation one word work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it's God who works in you and that that word there for work is about God's power working out so these are two different words so don't be confused by the English translation there these are different things and this is God's energy if you like his power his might his ability all of his capabilities working out through us that we might work out our salvation does that make sense have I said that enough times for it to have got through okay so what is it that God is actually doing in his work as I say what he wants to do is to have us live those lives that bring glory to him that reflect the fact that we have faith in Jesus reflect the fact that God lives in us now God lives in us through the Holy Spirit. Jesus lives in us through the Holy Spirit. And God, and, and we read in, uh, in John that, oh, bless you. Uh, we read in John that um, the Father and the Son both live in us. So a number of times we read this, that God is living in us and is delighted um, to be there. And the larger context of this, if we look at the, the verses in chapter 2 before then, we see that wonderful hymn, that wonderful description of Jesus. And uh, Paul introduces that by telling us that we ought to have the same mind as Jesus and then describes what the result of the mind of Jesus brought about. Jesus was um, supremely humble. And Johnny talked about this last week, the servant king. He had a sacrificial servant heart. That caused him to be humble, to be obedient, to love, to come and die on the cross. And Paul is saying here in this broader context that working out our salvation means that we need to reflect that character of Christ. But if you look after it, and it's why I read on quite a bit afterwards, um, Paul also tells us that such lives that work out their salvation, that work out the character of Christ in daily lives, shine like stars in a dark generation. Shine like bright lights in a dark generation. And we are in a dark generation. This brought to mind uh, something I saw when I was working in Sweden. So I spent 15 months or something commuting to Stockholm. And... Um, as you're aware, once you get further north, the days get shorter and shorter uh, in the winter. And uh, if you go far enough north past the Arctic Circle, then um, there's something like uh, what to be 18, like 20 hours of darkness a day in the winter. When we went to see the, the Northern Lights um, up there north of the Arctic Circle, it was not getting light until about 10 o'clock in the morning and it was getting dark at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. So you can imagine, here is darkness. Um, when it got to 5 o'clock, it felt like it was 11 o'clock at night and we ought to be going to bed. Really confusing. Uh, but there is a dark 
you know, it's naturally dark. And on the 13th of December in Sweden, they have St. Lucia's Day. And there may be, if you read around St. Lucia, there may be some um, origins of um, St. Lucia that uh, are a bit occultish, but whatever. St. Lucia is almost, uh, um, you know, uh, a patron saint of Sweden, which is interesting considering it's a fairly secular um, sort of country. Um, but it goes back, and what happens is that in the modern form, um, they celebrate light. So we've got to the 13th of December, so certainly in Stockholm it's getting, um, it's getting light about eight or half past eight in the, in the morning and starting to get dark at about half past two. You know, car lights come on at half past two. Um, and all the school kids come out, um, dressed up in white with candles. And there is, um, where, where somebody has, uh, won the competition to be St. Lucia, historically they would have had a crown with candles. Um, these days it's electric light, much safer. <laughs> Health and safety. Um, but they celebrate light. This is a dark place. And when I saw this, I didn't really know what was, was happening. So at breakfast time in the hotel, there were these school kids all dressed in white with their lights singing their St. Lucia song, celebrating light, being light in a physically dark world. And that's what it brought back to me, that picture of all these children being light in a dark world. The other thing that's interesting is that when the, the Swedes put their Christmas lights up, uh, most of them are white. They don't tend to have the, the coloured things that we do. And um, they'll have them in their windows and on their balconies and things like that. And they remain there from Christmas to Easter. Because again, this is a dark season. And it is such a joy walking back from the office to wherever it was I was staying to see all of these white lights around. It brought a joy because there was light in the darkness. And that's what Paul's telling us that we can be like when we live out our Christian life, when we live out our salvation, when we allow God's power to work in us to live out our salvation. So what might that look like in our lives, living out that salvation? Well, it's interesting just looking back um, into... Well, first of all, I would say there's all sorts of hints and clues, instructions, directions and guides in the Bible as to what this would look like. And again, just looking back into the context, um, when Paul is telling us to have this same mind of Christ, that mind of Christ that he's describing is the outworking of humility. And he says it in uh, where it appears effectively two well two times explicitly and one one time I think implicitly. Um, he starts off by saying, "Be humble-minded," and that's a single word again in the Greek. Be humble-minded. You know, think in a humble way. Think humbly, like Christ did. Have the same mind as Christ. And then he goes on and says, um, "Well, describes a humble." Christ, a humble son of God. So if you think of the humility 
that it took to be the, or part of the almighty Godhead, the Most High, the Almighty, to leave that behind. And that's what it says. He didn't grasp it. He didn't hang on to it. He was prepared to give that up in order to serve the Father, because this is what the Father wanted him to do, and in order to serve you and to serve me. And he came as a human. He gave up the godness, if you like, the, the, the full Godhead, and became uh, God and man in human form. But even then, that wasn't enough humbling. He humbled himself yet again and became obedient to the most ghastly, awful, nasty, humiliating death possible on the cross for us so that we could gain salvation through God's mercy, his grace, and uh, through faith. And he's saying to us here, be humble, be humble. Now the word for humility I discovered when we were, we were looking at, it appears in the fighter verse in 1 Peter 5 verse 6, humble yourselves, and we'll look at that in a bit. But this word for humble means to level the top of a mountain. And that's how it's used. When uh, in, in Luke chapter 3, when John is quoting Isaiah, speaking about his mission, John's mission, he says, Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. And that uh, made low is the, that word for humility. So it's a word that describes taking the top off of our mountain and filling the valley in and making a plain. And when we come to humble ourselves, that's what it's about. It's taking the top off our mountain. It's taking off our pride. All those things that we might um, think aren't we great in and filling in our valleys. And there are uh, plenty of places um, in the Bible, and we'll come to that later on. So we are called then to cultivate such a heart and character that's been made low before God. And that's what Jesus did. He made himself low. He gave up the Godhead. And he gave up all, all human standing and filled in the valley and hung on that cross for us. And that's this picture of humility. That is this picture of humility. But looking on beyond that, I just wanted to reflect then on a few of the fighter verses we've had recently and actually one that will come soon. Because the fighter verses aren't just meant to be um, an exercise in memory. Their whole purpose is to equip us to be able to live out our salvation. And I was thinking about that. It struck me it was a bit like, um, or the fighter verses are a bit like when on our uh, men's survival day, the G-Men day, Operation Eagle, we were target shooting. Now Pete Stanford brought his 2-2 rifle out um, and the first thing we had to do um, was to take 10 rounds, a really diddy little rounds, 
and load them into the magazine. And then the magazine's put in the rifle and you pull the bolt action and a round goes into the breech so when you pull the trigger it fires. The fighter verses are like loading our magazine so that we've got the ammunition ready for when we need it. And that's really the whole aim of those things. And they help us to uh, have guidance. You know, the magazine that we load is not that which will kill others. Um, It's there to give us encouragement and guidance and God's promises when we need them, both in good times and in difficult times. And they're there to help us turn to the scripture and our daily work when we don't necessarily have that or if it's in the middle of the night and you can't see it without waking the household up. That's the purpose of the fighter verses. So I just wanted to pick um, a few of those and play them into this context of um, working out our salvation. So that's the first one, Galatians 5.22. This is the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Now we've looked from Philippians at certain aspects of Christian character, that Christ-like humility. This list of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control, is another way of describing the Christian character, is it not? And this is actually probably a useful one. All of Scripture is obviously useful, but it's useful in the sense that here are a list of characteristics that we can ask God about ourselves. Are we truly loving? Do we really have joy? What does it mean to have joy? Um... Do we truly have peace before God? Are we patient? So on and so on and so on. And if we have that in our minds, we can then pray through that. Now the other interesting thing here, of course, well, a couple of interesting things. First of all, that's all one fruit. As I understand it, the word fruit there is singular, it's not plural. And to me, it always seems to me like this is like a diamond. And you've got all these facets of a diamond. And all of these nine individual characteristics are facets of that diamond. And I know Judy, I understand, thinks about it as a fruit salad. The whole entity is the fruit salad, but you've all got all those different bits of fruit in the fruit salad. But the point is it's all one. So we can't pick and choose. We need all of those. Um, And we can bring these before the Lord and meditate upon these before the Lord and ask him to help us in um, each of those. And the other thing, of course, is after this it talks about uh, those of us who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So when Jesus died upon the cross, we effectively died there with him. And with that, our passions and desires died. And all of this, if you like, are God's passions and desires. 
These are the things that God will work in us, will exercise his power to work in us, to help us live out our salvation. And in so doing, enable us to leave behind, for some of the time at least, those passions and desires, those things that uh, get in our way. And then at the end there it says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And the way God works out his power in us is through the indwelling Holy Spirit. He will work in us through the Holy Spirit and therefore we need to keep in step with the Spirit, to keep in line with him, to be attentive to him and to go with him. Then there's another verse, Galatians 2.20. This one we'll come to in a few weeks' time. But you'll see a link here, crucified. And one of the things I wanted to to demonstrate is how when you look at all these fighter verses, they kind of create a web of ideas, of things that God is teaching us. And there are links between them all, and you can go from one to another to another, following those links. And here, this fault one I picked up here is crucified. Paul is saying, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So there is the action. There's the crucifixion. Christ gave himself for me. But effectively, when Christ died upon the cross, he died in our place. And therefore, to all intents and purposes, as far as God is concerned at least, we died on that cross with him. We were due the death penalty. Christ died in our place, but we died there with him. So our death penalty has been worked out. So Paul is saying, I have been crucified with Christ. I have to understand that, and that will affect uh, the way that I live. So he says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The power of God at work in us to live for him. And then on to 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So obviously there's the link here, humble. And that is a powerful word, as I've said. This is about levelling the top of the mountains, levelling your pride, my pride, our pride, those things that get in the way of God, levelling them out of the way. But there are some fearful verses that should create fear and trembling in the Bible concerning humility. In Matthew 23, we read, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And the question that arises from that, because effectively when you look at the context of those and some of the other versions of that in different places, what it's really saying is, God will humble you. If you exalt yourself, God will humble you. And the question then comes, would you rather be Uh, humbled by your own hand or humbled by God 
Would you rather be the one that takes the top of your mountain off or have God take the top of your mountain off for you? Now, for, for his people, he will only ever do that in love, genuine love. And he will do it so that he can have pleasure in us because we are people that reflect the character of his son. And by implication, because Jesus is the exact representation of the Father, it means representing or reflecting God's character. <coughs> and he will have pleasure in us. <coughs> so, is our self-exaltation worth the risk, as it were? It's nothing. Our self-exaltation is nothing. Because we, who are we? We are God's creation. He is the almighty God. The most high. And when he exalts, does he not exalt? And in Daniel 10, there are some fantastic words spoken by an angel to Daniel. In the ESV, twice, the angel reports God saying of Daniel, um, O man greatly loved. The NIV refers to that as highly esteemed instead of greatly loved. And would you rather be highly esteemed by yourself or highly esteemed by God? I would love to be highly esteemed by God. Wouldn't that be amazing? But to do that, we have to level our mountains. And that's a much less painful way to do it than have God deal with us. But more than that, it says there that we can cast our anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. And I read uh, a John Piper comment on that, which was, this is the sweetest verse in the Bible. God cares for you. God cares for you. Sometimes it might not seem like it, particularly if we are in the depths of things that will cause us to be anxious. But he does, and we can cast. As Steve pointed out when he talked about this verse, that word for cast is literally hurling your anxieties on God. And so God will care for us. And also you could see that to hang on to our anxieties is to say that we put ourselves before God. God will take them. He tells us we'll take them. He's just saying, give them to me. Give them to me. And we say, no, I'd rather be in pain and agony all by myself. Which doesn't make much sense really, does it? It's hard to give our anxieties to God, but he's at work in us to bring such things about. Because he cares for you. Quickly, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. And here's a promise, here's a description of why we can resist him. <clears throat> because, uh, where is it in there? Uh, because the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself work on your behalf. Isn't that an amazing promise? The God of all grace. He is the source of all grace. There is no grace apart from God. None whatsoever. He has it all and he can work it 
all the grace that we need, he can work out. And he underlines that with the fact that he has called us to his eternal glory in Christ. Because Christ hung upon that cross because we were crucified with him. We can join him in his eternal glory. And because God is able to work out this grace, we can resist the devil, firm in our faith, firm in our faith. And then there's a fighter verse that we missed, which kind of follows on. This, I think, was during the breakfast, so we never uh, looked at it. But an amazing verse, Proverbs 18.10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Now, the image of the, the, um, the strong tower, I think, is quite obvious. But in uh, ancient days, certainly in the Middle East, where there were unfortified towns, they would have a strong building in the middle, often a tower. And if the, if the town was attacked, everybody would literally run into that, that strong building, into that tower, and the doors would be bolted, and then they could go up on the tower and they could chuck things down on top of their enemies. And we read about that in Judges. Then Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city, and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in. And they went up to the roof of the tower. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Nice and gory. But there is this picture of the strong tower. And what God is saying here is, his name is such a strong tower. He is such a strong tower. After all, he's the most high. He is the almighty. There is no power in the universe that is superior to him. And everything else is far inferior to him. And when the righteous, and the righteous are those who belong to him, the righteous are those who have received salvation by faith, who know what it is that Jesus did on the cross and who are seeking to let God live out their, <coughs> um, well, work out their, uh, their salvation. When such a person runs into that tower, he is safe. So when we are assaulted by the enemy, resisting, needing to resist, we can run into that strong tower of the Lord and be safe. And then that follows on, as Steve has already said, in Psalm 91. <clears throat> he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Mighty, the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God, in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, even if you are kittens. And under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. And it just occurred to me of the poignancy of that image that Steve gave us, of the kittens being protected under the wings of the hen. Kittens aren't hens. People aren't God. God is not people. That's a very strong picture of God looking after us, isn't it? Shouldn't be there. 
Those, those kittens shouldn't be there under the wings of the hen. But they were. And by... Probably. And we've been adopted by Christ, by the Lord, yeah, by the Father. Yep. An enormously strong picture. And his faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. And Steve talked a bit about the shield and the buckler. But he's, what it's saying here is God is building this wall of shields around us to guard us and keep us when we are um, under assault. And therefore, we can say, God is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And what I wanted to do was just to, well, A, encourage us to live that life, to let God work in us, that we might live out our salvation in a way that delights him. Because that's what his desire is. I wanted to encourage us to do that. I also wanted to encourage us to take a look at the fighter verses because it's easy for those to come up week by week and we just go through the exercise. They're well worth getting to grips with. Even if you, you, you struggle to learn them, take one day a week and meditate on this week's fighter verse and get these things into your minds, into your hearts. And you might not need them now, but one day you will. And when they're there, the Holy Spirit can bring them back to our recollections. What God is looking for are people who have a heart's desire to live out a Christ-like life, exhibiting Christ's character in the very way that we live, and to be reliant upon him to bring that about. The people who are humble, people who have set aside themselves and would prefer to go God's way so that our lives are actually a level plane before God. It's not level without feature. It's actually getting rid of the unhelpful features so that God has a place in which he can work and operate in us according to his power. And when we work out that salvation in our lives, then we'll see that God truly does delight in us. And isn't that an amazing place to be, to know that we are delighted in by God? And then maybe, maybe when we get to see him, he will say, highly esteemed, greatly loved. He's shown it, He showed it with the cross that we are greatly loved. Thank you. Let's just pray. Father God, we want to thank you that you are this wonderful God who provided this means of salvation for us, Lord. And without it, we don't have a strong tower to run into. But with it, Lord, we have a God in whom we can trust, a God who is our refuge and our fortress. And so, Father God, we'd ask that you would work in us, that you would delight in us because of how you work in us, to bring about in us that character of Christ that would bring glory to you and be lights in a dark generation. We just thank you and praise you, Lord. Amen. Amen.